Welcome to Live in America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs. Is America a republic or a democracy? What do those terms mean and why do they matter? And what about institutions like the Senate and the Electoral College that are sometimes called undemocratic? Should they be reformed or abolished? Constitutional scholars and professors Randy Barnett of Georgetown Law and Vikram Amar of the University of Illinois College of Law sat down for a rich debate of these questions here at the National Constitution Center, moderated by NCC President Jeffrey Rosen. Here's Jeff to kick off the debate. All right, we are going to jump right in with the central question that has brought us here today. Uh, are we a republic or a democracy, and does that make a difference? And we're going to start with Vic. Well, first, Jeff, let me uh, um, thank you for inviting Randy and me to be here. Uh, it's indeed our pleasure, um, and thank you all for coming to, uh, to chat with us. Let's, as lawyers, clarify terms first. Because, you know, at the founding, a lot of people used the term republic and republican as synonymous with popular sovereignty and majority rule. So if the question is, are we in the United States after the Constitution um, a system of direct democracy versus elected representation, I would say, just as is true of our economy, not being entirely capitalist and not being entirely a controlled economy. It's a mixture. It's a mix. So I'll just identify, to get the ball rolling, several features of our Constitution that lean in the direction of, of uh, filtered or representative government um, uh, in which maybe not all individual citizens' are, voices are equal. Um, and then talk about some other aspects of the Constitution that, that are more um, kind of obviously democratic in the... In the, in the um, sense in which I think you posed it. So the Constitution rejects uh, direct democracy, that is initiative and referenda and, and everyone town hall uh, lawmaking uh, with regard to federal legislation. So the Constitution creates a Congress, we elect Congress, we cannot instruct Congress, we cannot recall the members of Congress uh, except at the next election. Um, uh, it also eschewed at the founding uh, the decision to have a national popular vote election for president uh, in favor of uh, an electoral college. Uh, as we'll talk later, the Constitution does not prevent moves in the direction of a national popular election, but it certainly did not uh, accept the invitation of, of James Wilson, for example, to have that uh, feature built in at the outset. And both with regard to the electoral college that we currently have and the United States Senate, um, there is a malapportionment in which um, uh, one person does not have uh, the same one vote as everyone else around the country. On the other hand, the Constitution's ratification procedures were incredibly democratic. The Constitution itself was ratified in special conventions in each of the 13 states, and the, the people eligible to vote for representatives at those ratifying conventions was as wide a swath of the electorate as, as existed in any uh, modern society at the time. Uh, the Constitution allows for direct election of members of the House of Representatives, and now after the late 1800s and early 1900s for the US Senate as well. 
and the Constitution does not prescribe quality, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, property or other uh, uh, qualifications uh, to vote for members of the House. There's no literacy tests or, uh, or, or, uh, or religious oaths required. Uh, the Republican Guarantee Clause, the provision of the Constitution that, that guarantees to each state a Republican form of government, is I think best understood as uh, requiring states to have majority rule and allowing states, uh, preserving those aspects of state government uh, that, that are directly democratic. So while the Constitution forecloses initiative and referenda at the federal level, it protects the rights of states to use the recall and the initiative and referendum. Whether that's always a wise decision is another matter, but the Constitution protects states uh, in doing that and indeed guarantees states that, uh, uh, that they will have a majoritarian form of government, not an oligarchical form of government. And that's why we have the one person, one vote principle from cases uh, like Reynolds uh, versus Sims and Baker versus Carr and Westbury versus Sanders that are in, uh, uh, in Randy's book, uh, that, that in all elections, uh, except currently the Senate election and the, 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 the presidential election, which is really a series of 50 uh, uh, plus elections, uh, every vote counts the same. Uh, and then uh, finally, and importantly, and related to all of this, the Constitution itself delegates a lot of important power to the states to um, figure out how we select uh, members of Congress and the president. So the state legislatures and the state peoples uh, get to decide uh, how to do congressional elections uh, in the first instance at least and how to uh, appoint uh, uh, their electors to the so-called electoral college. So I would say there's a, there's a very complicated rich blend that allows for a lot of flexibility, especially at the state level, even as relates federal institutions like the U.S. Senate and the, the presidency through the electoral college as we'll probably get into. Thank you so much for that. Randy, you just heard Vic's very uh, thoughtful and nuanced answer, namely that we're both a democracy and a republic. We have blended elements of both, and he described them. Is there anything in his statement that you disagree with, and do you want to make the case that, in fact, we are a republic rather than a democracy? Uh, yeah, I, will. I don't disagree with very much of what Vic said, but I nevertheless think it's useful to distinguish between a form of government that we could call Republican and a form of government we would call Democratic. And I'm gonna do something that is not great for these pr proceedings, and that is I'm gonna read a few quotes. And then once I've read them, I'm not gonna read any more quotes again. So this will be, this will be the only time. So these are some quotes from the Philadelphia Convention, which happened right here, not very far from, this, from where we are today. Um, at the Philadelphia Convention, Edmund Randolph, the first Attorney General of the United States, observed that, quote, the general object, meaning the purposes of writing a constitution, was to provide a cure for the evils under which the U.S. labored. And he, did, he then said, quote, in tracing these evils to their origin, every man had found it in the turbulence and follies of democracy. Eldridge Gary from, Gary from Massachusetts stated, the evils we experience flow from the excess of democracy. Roger Sherman of Connecticut, contended that the people, quote, immediately should have as little to do with as may be about the government. Governor Morris from Pennsylvania noted that, quote, every man of observation had seen in the democratic branches of the state legislature's precipitation in Congress changeableness in every department and excesses against personal liberty, private property, and personal safety. And finally, George Mason, who actually was among the more democratically inclined 
members of the, um, uh, the uh, uh, Constitutional Convention, he said that we, he admitted that, quote, we had been too democratic in forming state governments. Now, what was their problem? What, were they, what did they mean by democracy? Well, it wasn't direct democracy. That wasn't what we had before under the Articles of Confederation. We had representative government under the Articles of Confederation, but it was a very majoritarian form of representative government. In other words, there was usually one house legislatures elected annually. If there is an upper house, it was elected by the lower house. Again, elected annually. The governor might actually be elected by the legislature itself, not popularly elected by the people as a whole. And so this is what they were responding to. And what was the problem that they saw with democracy? Well, they had some you know, outcome problems. They thought the country was in bad shape because of these things. There had been debtor relief laws passed and protectionist legislation passed and the inability to uh, adhere to our treaties. There were quite a number of problems. But the, what they were primarily concerned with was the problem of majoritarianism. Madison, before he went to the Constitutional Convention, did something really quite remarkable. He wrote a position paper really for his own benefit, uh, which goes under the title of The Vices of the American Political System, in which he tried to figure out something's wrong here, but what is what's wrong? What is what's going on that's wrong? And, he, and, and I'm just going to read two quotes from this, his own position paper that he wrote basically for himself, but you can read it now. He said, uh, the problems that we're facing today, um, the evil, he said, that we're facing today, uh, calls into question the fundamental principle of Republican government. And this gets to what Vic said, that Republican was, had a pretty democratic meaning, at least at first, before this happened. Calls into question the fundamental principle of Republican government, that the majority who rule in such governments are the safest guardians of both the public good and of the private rights. He basically reject, he said, but that has not turned out to be the case. The majority has not turned out to be the safest guardian. Um, and then to understand that, he posited a thought experiment. He said, place three individuals in a situation wherein the interest of each depends on the rights of the, uh, of the others and give to two of them an interest opposed to the rights of the third. Will the latter, meaning the third person, be secure if he can be outvoted by the first two? said, the prudence of every man would shun the danger. Likewise, he said, two, uh, two, will 2,000 in a like situation be less likely to encroach on the rights of 1,000? In other words, the problem that he diagnosed was one of majoritarianism. So how does this translate to today? Um, if you equate democracy with majority rule, and I'm going to argue that that is how the term is usually used. Not, it's not usually used in the mixed way that Vic just did, but it's usually used in defense of majoritarianism, and I'll try to prove that in a second. If that is what you mean by democracy, then an actually democracy or majoritarianism is not the solution to the problem of governance. It is the problem for which we have our Constitution as itself supposed to be solving. Our, our Constitution is supposed to be solving the problem of majoritarianism, the problem of democracy. That's not the solution. Now, why do I say this is what people tend to mean when they use the word de democratic today? Well, downstairs in the bookstore, on the very same shelf that my book, Our Republican Constitution, appears, three books down is my good friend Sandy Levinson's book, Our Undemocratic Constitution. And I have to say that his book inspired me to write my book. It was a book review of his book 
our undemocratic constitution that inspired me to write our Republican constitution. Because in my book review, I said, yes, Sandy's right. It is an undemocratic constitution. It's a Republican one, and here's why it's good. In his book, he highlights all the defects uh, of the constitution from a democracy standpoint, in his opinion, what the defects are. And so what is the beef? Well, let's take the Electoral College, for example. What is the objection we hear made about the Electoral College? Well, it's the possibility that a person who gains a majority of the electoral votes will not have gained a majority of the popular vote. And that's a problem. Why is that a problem? Because the majority didn't get their way. What's the problem with the Senate? That a majority of senators or, or a, minority of, a, a majority of senators representing a minority of the population might be able to block legislation that a majority of the people want. That's another, what's the problem with that? It's undemocratic. What makes it undemocratic? It's blocking the majority. So when the term democratic is used as a criticism for the various features that are in our Republican Constitution, the objection that's being made is it's not majoritarian enough. But my response is majoritarianism is, is itself a problem. It's not the only problem. There's the problem of minority rule. That's also a problem. And that's the reason why James Madison, in Federalist Paper Number 10, identified the problem of faction as those people who are united by some common interest or of passion, at, be it a majority or a minority of the whole. They're actuated by some common interest or passion adverse to the rights of their fellow citizens or to the public good. That is the problem for which our Republican Constitution was adopted, our anti-majoritarian Constitution. But at the same time, let me say one last thing, because I know it's time to, to converse here. Um, our Republican Constitution does have what you would call democratic elements to it, like, for example, the House of Representatives and other elements that have become more majoritarian or democratic as time went by. What would be the value of that within a Republican Constitution? I think it does have a value. That is, within a Republican Constitution, the first thing that you're trying to look for is checks on power, checks against minoritarian abuses, checks against majoritarian abuses. And one of the things that a Democratic branch like the House of Representatives provides, as well as popular elections provides, is a check on power. It isn't so much that the majority gets to rule, it's that the majority can provide a check on powers exercised either by themselves as a majority or a different majority or by a minority. So there is a role for what you would call democratic accountability even in a Republican Constitution as long as we understand that the ultimate aim of a Republican Constitution, and I should have led with this, is not the reflection of majority will. That's the problem. What is the ultimate aim? It is to secure the unalienable rights of we the people, each and every one of us, and the next sentence in the Declaration of Independence after it identifies those rights as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is it says, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That is the end and goal, to secure these rights. And everything else about our Republican Constitution, if it's a good Constitution, is there to preserve the rights of the people. Great. Thank you very much for that uh, powerful statement, Randy has just said that he agrees with Vic that our Constitution is a mix of Democratic and Republican features, but he says the primary purpose of the Constitution is to secure unalienable rights, and therefore it is designed to prevent both majority and minority factions, and therefore efforts to make it more Democratic are ill-advisable because that might threaten those unalienable rights. Can I just add one thing about what, what my challenge is? Sure. 
elements, uh, proposals to add to make the Constitution more democratic need to be defended uh, on some other ground than simply it's majoritarian. That is, there's, it's, they might be more justifiable, but, they, but it's not an adequate justification to say, oh, this empowers the majority, because that is actually part of the problem. So more democratic elements could be good, but I want to hear why. That, that is an important qualification. It's not a simple debate between we have to be more or less democratic. For Randy, the question is, does it or does it not protect unalienable and individual rights? Well, let's dig down into two of the most contested anti-democratic features of the Constitution, both of which Randy mentioned, the Electoral College and the Senate. Let's begin with the Electoral College. Vic, you have written in defense of the National Popular Vote Compact, where states would agree voluntarily to give their electoral votes to the presidential candidate who wins the popular majority. Tell us about why you think that's a good idea, why you think it could be pulled off in practice, and why you think the existing electoral college is ill-advised. So in uh, route to that, let me first uh, play off a few things that Randy said. There's no doubt that the founding generation was concerned about majoritarian excess. Um, but it's not right, to the extent that Randy intimated it, to say that they were not committed to majoritarianism as a very basic value. Repub the term Republican is used most often as synonymous with popular sovereignty and majority rule. Now, they put in all kinds of checks to rein in majoritarian excesses, whether they're individual rights in the Bill of Rights, enforceable by courts, whether it's separation of powers, a divide and, and conquer strategy, where they divide up power and infuse it in different institutions to fight amongst themselves to prevent majorities ever from capturing all the necessary elements to do a lot of harm. They, they included people in not just voting, but institutions like juries uh, as, a, as a bulwark, as a safeguard. So um, there, there really is ultimately, even in a system of, of minority rights and, and concerns over minority rights, there's a baseline commitment to the idea that a majority of people have an inalienable right to alter and abolish and change forms of government that aren't working for them. That goes back to the Declaration, and, uh, and it, was, it ripened into, into full fruition at the time of the Constitution. Now, it's easy to say majoritarianism is, is, is kind of bad or, or is dangerous, but let's, and Randy left off on a really good point. He said, I wanna know why a, a move in the, in the direction of more democracy might be good. The thing that's good about majoritarianism is it treats everyone equally, right? By definition, you know, so you can say, well, um, why, do not, why do people not like the current electoral college? Well, it's because people um, uh, who are uh, in the majority might lose. That's another way of saying people in the minority had a bigger voice than people in the majority on a per-person basis. That's the essence of one person, one vote. Um, there, there's no distinction between one person, one vote, and majoritarianism. Now, again, I'm, I'm all for, for checking majorities with, with, with uh, uh, structural safeguards and, and individual rights and the like. But at the end of the day, um, the, the good thing about majority rule is that everybody is treated the same. It's a baseline equality. Brings us to the Electoral College. Um, uh, about almost 20 years now, uh, my older brother, who's a law professor at Yale, who uh, Jeff has uh, worked a lot with as well, uh, and I, and a third uh, person, uh, a former dean of Northwestern's Law School, up the road from me uh, in Champaign-Urbana, uh, uh, Robert Bennett, we laid the intellectual foundations for this thing that has ripened into the National Popular Vote Compact. Here's how it works. 
The Constitution in Article 2 says that every state can appoint electors to an electoral college in any way it sees fit. Right now, every state gives its cluster of electors to the candidate who, or to, to electors who are pledged to support the candidate, who receives the most popular support in that state. There's a couple of exceptions, Nebraska and Maine, but here in Pennsylvania, um, uh, if, if a candidate wins uh, more popular support than the, than the opposing candidate, then uh, electors will be selected who represent that popular. Uh, okay. What the National Popular Vote Compact says is that states, if enough other states agree to do the same, will pledge their electors, well, they'll pick electors, who are pledged to support the person who wins the most votes nationwide, regardless of who won the most votes in that individual state. So, for example, if a, a, a Republican wins nationwide, but loses in Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania is a signatory to the National Popular Vote Compact, then Pennsylvania would nonetheless pledge its, um, uh, its electors uh, for the Republican candidate, even though that person wasn't <clears throat> the most popular, <clears throat> excuse me, within the state. If enough states sign on to this to account for 270 electors, that is a majority of the Electoral College, that nearly, not entirely, because electors have some independence and sometimes they act faithlessly and don't follow through on their, their pledges, but putting that to one side, that nearly guarantees that the popular vote winner will be the, the president. Right now, about 190 states representing 190 electors have signed on to the plan. So they're about 70% of the way there that they need to get there. One big problem with the plan so far has been um, that only blue states have signed on because people wrongly think that the Electoral College helps Repu uh, Democrats, uh, excuse me, Republicans and hurts Democrats. In fact, you'll find as many folks in 2000 who expected Gore to win the Electoral College and lose the popular vote than the other way around. Four years later, in 2004, uh, uh, George W. Bush drubbed John Kerry nationally by three million votes, but if the weather had been better in Ohio, Kerry would have carried the state and won the Electoral College. We're at a moment in history where the Electoral College does not help or hurt either party, and it's, it's, it's sheer silliness to extrapolate from a couple of, of data points. That does not, I mean, I come from a university that's very committed to empirical work. That's not, that's not good empirical analysis, just two little data points. And, and if you think that it is better to have a national popular vote system and you're worried about partisan consequences, then here's my suggestion. Let's all adopt the national popular vote, but defer its implementation until 2032, 12 years. We have no idea what the partisan implications will be at that point. That also gives us some time in the meanwhile to iron out some logistical wrinkles that I think need to be ironed out in the plan. And the two reasons why I tend to prefer a national popular vote um, are every vote is counted equally across the country, and this president represents all Americans, not just people from some places and not others. And also, that it, it, it broadens the election so that it's not focused on a, key, a few key swing states. Right now, states like California and Texas and Illinois and New York are ignored because they are predictably red or predictably blue. And the margin of victory matters not a whit. If you win the state, you win all of its electors. When President Trump says he could have won the popular vote, he might be right. 
we don't know that he couldn't have run up big tallies in the South and minimized his losses in New York and California because he wasn't playing that game. It didn't matter how much he lost New York and California by. He was going to lose New York and California. It didn't matter how much he won the South by. He was going to win the South. So um, right now, the election campaigns are focused only on Ohio and Florida and Virginia and maybe Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan uh, 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 these days. And that's no way to run a national election. So if you think that, that campaigns should be more national and that votes should be counted equally, then the national popular vote is a good idea and it's perfectly constitutional, permiss constitutionally permissible. There are some drawbacks, I, I, you know, I, I acknowledge. If you think that the Electoral College works reasonably well and there's always unforeseen consequences and there's always a risk in change and, and you, you're risk averse, that's a reason for leaving well enough alone. So that's kind of where we are. Is the democracy gain and the uh, spreading out the election across the whole country where you go after votes wherever they exist and not just in, in swing states, is that worth the risk of unforeseen consequences? And so that's, I think, what we're going to have to find out as, 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 uh, uh, as the national popular vote proceeds. I will say one final thing. In many red states, the idea of the National Popular Vote Compact polls very highly. It's Republican elected legislative leaders who are scared of the effects it will have on their party's prospects for the White House. In places like Oklahoma and Arizona, um, it, it polls above 55, 60, 65% among a very red electorate, which suggests to me that if the NPV plan is gonna break through in a red state, and it has to break through in a red state for it to be functional. It, you don't wanna ever do any major reform on a purely partisan basis. I think that's terrible business. If it breaks through in a red state, and I think it will in the next 10 years, it may very well be because of direct democracy. That an initiative in Oklahoma or Arizona, because states west of the Mississippi have broader initiative powers, um, that's how it'll get on the board. Uh, and then once uh, one or two sta state red states join, look, Texas is screwed over by the Electoral College just as much as California. No one cares about Texas because it's predictably red. Um, uh, so so there, there are voters in, in a lot of red states that realize they're taken for granted as well. Uh, and that's, I think, the next big challenge for, uh, for the, the movement. And as I said, if people are really worried about the partisan uh, game playing, then let's just agree to adopt it and defer it out to a date where we couldn't possibly know what the consequences will be. Great. Thank you so much for that. Randy, very eager for your thoughts on the Electoral College. It was originally de designed as a Republican institution where wise men would check popular passions because they would know the candidates, but it's come to serve a different purpose of ratifying partisan choices. Your thoughts on the national popular vote, and uh, Vic says it would be a democratic gain without threatening individual rights or being a Republican loss, agree or disagree? Um, well, first of all, it's obvious that Vic has invest, invested a tremendous amount of time and energy and passion in this program, uh, in this proposal. I have not. Um, nor have I invested time, uh, energy, or passion in opposing the program. So this is not something that is, uh, is either my pro-hobby horse or negative hobby horse. So let me just give you my off-the-top-of-my-head kind of reactions to this. First of all, remember what I said earlier, and I'm, now I'm really glad I said it. Um, the only, the, my, my criticism of uh, arguments on behalf of more democracy is I need to hear more than simply it's more democratic for it to mean it's a good thing to do. And so I was waiting to hear what Vic said about why 
you should do this. I mean, a lot of it was just explaining to you the mechanics, the mechanisms of how it would work, but why is it a good thing? And there were two arguments that he made. Um, uh, one is that it counts every vote equally or counts every person equally. Well, it does so in a way. It does so sort of in the input stage, which is in the, you're voting uh, for a president or you're voting for a representative. That, that's sort of the equal vote idea. But then again, uh, the conception of popular sovereignty based on democratic majoritarianism was actually most graphically promoted by, Fred, by, by Stephen Douglas um, in his theory of popular sovereignty as to why territories ought to be able to vote on the slavery question um, as a matter of pure majority vote. That's, we would decide which states are slave and which states are free on the basis of a majority vote. Well, obviously, um, any free blacks, even if, even if slaves were allowed to vote, which they wouldn't be, and even if free blacks were allowed to vote, which they might not be, um, they would be a minority. And even if you gave them their full vote, you'd say, well, we're treating you as an equal. But guess what? At the end of the day, you're going to be a slave because we voted, the majority of us voted that you're a slave. Well, obviously, Vic's not in favor of that, and Jeff's not in favor of that. Nobody in this room is in favor of that. But why not? That, that, that's more democratic than the Republicans' position. And it was Sam and Chase, for example, uh, when he argued against Stephen Douglas in, in the Senate, who argued that um, this is a queer kind of republicanism, or he even said it was a queer kind of democracy, where you override the rights of the individual. So to me, just saying that there's more input there's more equality on the input because every, every vote counts the same. This, to me, is not much of an argument. It's, it's sort of like, okay, what else have you got? And the, what else has he got is that, oh, you know, uh, Texas gets ignored in the presidential race and California gets ignored and New York gets ignored. You know, I can live with this. Um, I can live with this. I want to hear more. Uh, that that's just doesn't strike me as being like the most worst thing I've ever heard, uh, to change the Constitution in this fundamental way. I'd like to hear more. Uh, before I would say what's good about the, uh, the Electoral College, I'd like to hear more about what's bad about the Electoral College. Can I jump in there, Jeff? Because yeah, this is an open invitation. This is a debate. What's, okay. bad, what's bad about the Electoral College? Well, let's, let's back up. Jeff said the Electoral College was originally about uh, uh, you know, selecting some wise group of people that would in turn know the candidates. And it's certainly true that America did not have the technology, the communications, the transportation to have a national popular vote at the outset until the advent of political political parties came along where you could know about somebody who was from another state even uh, uh, by, by, by virtue of the party affiliation. But a huge part of the Electoral College's origins was slavery. The reason why you didn't have a national popular vote in 1800 and, and, and thereafter, and if you watch Hamilton, the, the play, is because Southern states got to count their slaves as three-fifths of a person for purposes of the House of Representatives, and that formula was embodied in the Electoral College formula. And as Madison said, it's not a big state, small state thing. This is the Southern states won't accept a direct uh, election mode of the president, uh, uh, and uh, as James Wilson from Pennsylvania, from Philadelphia, uh, advocated. So I want to go back to Randy's point about... Just so I understand it, uh, yeah. they, they wouldn't accept it because a direct election would favor their interests less than yeah, the so House formula? Let's operationalize it. Um, Pennsylvania had more free voters than Virginia. Virginia had 20% or so more electors because they got to count their slaves. For 32 of the first 36 years after ratification, the president was a slave-owning Virginian. Coincidence? Not remotely. Now, you can have good reasons for maintaining something that has a tainted origin. 
That happens sometimes. And maybe, you know, risk aversion is a good enough reason since it's, it's served us relatively well. Obviously, we've gotten rid of slavery after the 13th Amendment. Uh, we, don't, we don't have to uh, worry about that uh, aspect of it. But I want to go back to um, uh, Randy's point that, well, you know, majoritarian rule isn't always good. And look at slavery. Uh, majorities can, can agree to, to have slaves, and we wouldn't want to allow that. I'm not saying majority rule is always good. You know, that's why we have a 13th Amendment. That's why we take certain questions away from localities and decide them at the national level so that states can't decide uh, whether they want to recognize gay marriage once it is a national right or, uh, or racial or gender equality and the like. We, we elevate the, 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 the level of decision making for a lot of things to deal with local tyranny, tyrannies of local majorities. And we embody particular rights provisions that judges are uh, inclined to enforce uh, uh, across, uh, across the country. But I would invert the question. To me, equality is a pretty good default position where everyone's vote counts the same. And the, the, the burden should be on someone who wants to justify deviation from one person, one vote. I mean, you could make arguments before Reynolds versus Sims and Baker versus Carr and Westbury versus Sanders in the 60s that, well, yeah, you know, malapportionment in which Chicago gets one seat in the election uh, in, the, in, the, in the state legislature and all of downstate Illinois, which is one gazillionth of population, they, got, they also get all those counties get one, one seat and Chicago gets one seat because it's based on, 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 uh, on com uh, community of interest. And we have urban versus rural, and those two are good voices, and we want one of each voice to, to talk to each other. And that's insane. No one would say today, no one would say governors should be elected within a state uh, pursuant to something resembling uh, an electoral college, right? Imagine in, in Pennsylvania, well, yeah, this county gets, gets, gets a, a few electors, this county gets a few electors to a statewide uh, uh, body that elects uh, governors. It would be insane to say that, that you wouldn't have one person, one vote to elect governors. And California, New York, Texas, they are bigger than, this, than the United States was until around the Civil War. These are nation states, and, and we, we, we elect their leaders by uh, popular. What other country? uses something like electoral college. We don't try to export this. We don't, when we're doing democracy building around the world, we don't say, well, this is a good way to pick your chief executive. So the burden, I think, if something was originally tainted and it deviates from, from equality and it has perverse uh, incentives with regard to uh, uh, campaigning uh, um, uh, on a national basis, I'd say, what good is it unless you're just risk averse? England, England does not choose their prime minister based on a national popular vote. The European Union does not choose their leadership They're based on a national popular vote. They're parliamentary systems. I'm, you asked me what country. Yeah, but they don't, does, they don't use an electoral college. So now do, okay, now do, now do the Senate. Wait, before we do the Senate. No, he has to do the Senate be, the, first. Let's do that in a sec, but that, he, he posed a very direct uh, question. He said, you, you, you said what's uh, uh, bad about the electoral college, and he answered it and said that its original purpose was bad and tainted and has also fallen out of line, and therefore he asked you to say what's good about it. So what's good, what's good about it? What's good about the electoral college is the same thing. We, first of all, we don't have slavery anymore. And so it is not, it's not giving an advantage to slaveholding states. So we can eliminate this problem with the Electoral College. This is not a problem with the Electoral College. Uh, unlike, for example, the problem with majoritarianism. The Pro problem with majoritarian voting um, is that it can always immiserate the minority at any given time. That is not a problem that has gone away. That is a problem that is always present. And it will be more, the more majoritarian our institutions become, the more omnipresent that problem will be. So that is a current problem with having a more majoritarian 
system in which, for example, um, big majorities of urban uh, of states that have large urban populations can impose their policy preferences on more rural and dispersed uh, populations who have different policy preferences. And it's not so much that the rural and dispersed population should impose their preferences on the majority, on the, on the urban, only that they should not have these other policies rammed down their throats. But it's zero so, sum. It's zero sum at state level. Someone's imposing on somebody, and I, which I, at is the end why of the day, I brought, which I'd rather is, have a majority impose on a minority than the, than the other way around. Which this is, this, the reason why I asked to talk about the Senate is because the Senate is the exact same objection that Vic has now made against the Electoral College applies as well to the Senate. So now I want him to do the Senate, because this means he doesn't want to just make one change. He wants to make two fundamental changes to the Constitution. This is a big deal. So now I want to hear about how we're going to change the Senate and why we should change the Senate, because the Senate performs the very same role I just attributed to the Electoral College, not allowing states that have tremendous monolith uh, politically monolithic urban areas to dominate the policies that are imposed on the rest of the country in a country that's as diverse as our country is. Uh, in terms of who is, I mean, why, why, who is promoting this pr proposal? Um, Vic mentioned that it's only being adopted so far by red states and it needs to be adopted. No, 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 the, the organization that's pushing it is chock full of Republican leaders. Okay, so if you go to the, the, the Every Vote Equal website, you'll see tons of former elected uh, uh, Republican leaders, including people like Newt Gingrich, who've endorsed it. Okay, it's not, it's just at the state legislative level so it's now, bogged down. So now let's do the Senate. Uh, okay, so that, that was a good exchange, and Randy's response is really you're going after, uh, he, he said the Electoral College protects the interests of small states against those of big states, as the Senate does, and he charges that you want to get rid of the Senate as well as the Electoral College, so what is wrong with the Senate, and do you want to get rid of it? Well, I don't think anybody, if you were building the system from scratch today, would have the Senate structured the way it is now. The Senate really did two things. It's designed to protect states against federal overreaching. And that's why initially the, the senators were elected from the state legislatures and not by the people directly. And I actually think the, the, the 17th Amendment and the move to direct election is not free from problem. I, I think actually having um, some members of Congress owe their allegiance to state entities rather just to un, than to undifferentiated masses of people in the state uh, could serve federalism, because I very much believe in a balance of federal and state power. So, so if I were to uh, uh, undo, uh, you know, kind of tweak the Senate, you know, ideally I would say, well, let's, uh, let's allocate seats in the Senate the way we do in the House, but have them elected by some, uh, or appointed by governors, so that they do owe allegiance to the state governments in a way that the current Senate does not. Because after the uh, uh, 17th Amendment and the, the movement that led up to it, there's really no difference between the Senate and the House in terms of its propensity to protect states from federal overreaching. Now, on the big state, small state thing, the Senate, like the Electoral College, was part of a compromise. You were not gonna get um, all the small states to join the Constitution uh, if you did not throw them the bone of the Senate. It was, it was a compromise. Um, but is, is it something that was uh, principled or uh, uh, ideal? I agree with Sandy Levinson. If you were structuring something today on a clean slate, 
I think having proportional rep having um, uh, representation based on population in the Senate makes sense just as it does in the House, even if you want two chambers to allow for some competition and for some deliberation. You know, California has 40 million people. Wyoming has 400,000 people. It's kind of weird that they have the same number of senators. At the state level, no state tries to do this with its state Senate, its state upper body, and I'm not. I'm not sure. I, 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 this is not. This is not um, uh, 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 tongue in cheek or, or, or rhetorical. Randy, do you disagree with the one person, one vote cases, Reynolds, Baker, that require state legislatures um, to to have representation in in the in, in the state uh, uh, legislature based on population? Before you answer that, I just yeah, the big difference between electoral college and the Senate is not that I wouldn't like to tweak the Senate if we could. It's that you have to amend the Constitution to do so. And you don't have to amend the Constitution to bring about the national popular vote via this state-driven plan. So it's a, it's, a, it's a matter of means, not ends. But if you asked me if I, if I could design it from scratch or if I could amend the Constitution at will, yeah, I'd probably rethink the Senate at some level. Well, two things. First of all, look how this compromise worked. The small states did not want to get into the union because they were afraid they were going to be subsumed by the big states. So we throw them a bone. That, that was the words you just heard. We throw them a bone to get them in. And then what happens? We take away the bone. So now that they're in, they can't get out and because now they're in. So that doesn't sound fair to me. I mean, if they didn't want to come in without this concession, it seems to me that we ought to stick with the agreement that was made when they and came in. And that's applause, Lord, and that's why I, it's going to be so hard to change Vic, let, let, me, let me finish. I didn't interrupt you. Um, as for amending the Constitution in order to make our proposal work, now Vic and his brother um, and Bob Bennett are constitutional scholars of the first rank. Um, and they would not have invested 10 years in this project if they didn't have an answer to the question I'm about to give you. And I actually already know what their answer is. But I do want to read to you what the Constitution says about interstate compacts. It's the Compacts Clause in Article 1. It says, no state shall, without the consent of Congress, enter into any agreement or compact with another state. No, let me see, read that again, because this is what it says. No state shall without the consent of Congress, enter into any agreement or compact with another state. So in fact, you actually do have to amend the Constitution to make the compacts argument work. Now, I already know what the answer is, but I first want to have Vic tell you what the answer is, because I know he has an answer to this question. Well, two, I, guess, I guess I have two answers. First of all, it may surprise you to know that I actually think Congress does need to approve the National Popular Vote Agreement for it to take effect. I think it could have been structured in a way that that wasn't required. Um, uh, but the people who have uh, been pushing this plan didn't, uh, did not follow all the advice that was given to them. And so I think, uh, I think it would be foolhardy to go forward with the National Popular Compact without congressional approval. But congressional approval has, is not the same as constitutional amendment. All you need is Congress to approve it. And once there are enough states that say they want it, there'll be a lot of pressure on Congress to consider it, in part because if Congress doesn't weigh in, then states going forward on their own will raise all kinds of problems. But none of that requires constitutional amendment. No, it, it, it would require an amendment to do it without the consent yeah, of Congress. Yeah, but, but again, you could and have structured it And the proposals that are on offer that I've seen do not require or do not even mention the consent of Congress. I'm, interest, I'm very pleased to see it's that you suggest that you need to have it happen, plan, but that is not what other proponents of this proposal have said in, when I've listened to them. The plan is agnostic on that point. They don't take a firm position on whether Congress should have to uh, approve it or not. 
Um, but I think as a matter of prudence, um, I, would, I would want Congress to weigh in, which is why I said earlier, defer implementation until 2032. That would give Congress time to act, to approve, and, and in the course of so doing, iron out some of the logistical wrinkles that I, I think uh, need to be ironed out because you don't want to you don't want to make a change like this without thinking through every possible. So, what, what what is your response to the concern that I think motivates most of the people who opposed to changing the electoral college, whether it's done by a compact or whether it's done by a constitutional amendment, um, that this would allow? concentrated majorities that come from singular urban uh, areas to dominate the policy of the country at the expense of more dispersed rural areas who have different values and, and different uh, um, uh, political preferences. Well, I think there's several. Apart from, apart from the answer that, look, majority will rule, damn it. That's just, it's majority rule, majority rule, majority rule. That's my answer. I'm not saying that's you, but I'm saying that that, apart from that answer, what is the answer? So I think there's several responses to that. Uh, first of all, notice that it's very, very unusual that the national popular vote winner doesn't win the Electoral College. So the reality is whether you have a, an electoral, the current system or a national popular vote system, uh, campaigns aren't going to change too much. You still have to win large numbers of votes in large, uh, in, in a lot of places throughout the country. You have to wage uh, a national uh, campaign. You can't just go to New York City and LA and Chicago and call it a day. Um, uh, the reality is there are undecided votes in lots of different places. You know, you know it, it, you, you, if you go to a city and, 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 uh, and, and uh, campaign, there may not be that many undecided votes. It may not be uh, that's where your, your attention is to be paid. But again, I keep coming back to, and I, and I wanna hear your, your thoughts on this. Before the 1960s, you had the same concern that, well, in the state legislature, uh, uh, we don't want Chicago to dominate downstate. We don't want New York City to dominate the rest of, of upstate New York. Uh, and, the, and, we the, and, the, and the Supreme Court and the country said, well, no, one person, one vote within the state. It, it, was that a mistake in your mind? That, that within, at the state level, um, uh, we shouldn't have um, the potential for larger urban areas to have a bigger voice? This is not what I <laughs> want to talk about at this moment, because I have one more question about the, uh, ab abolishing the Electoral College before we, we would get anywhere near that one. Okay. And that is, currently, and I'm from, I just want to tell everybody, I'm from Cook County, Illinois. It's where I grew up. It's where I was a criminal prosecutor. I don't know if everybody knows what Cook County, Illinois is. Chicago. Chicago. Um, it's, it's, I mean, you're, you're, an, you're an Illini now. You yeah. know all about Cook County. Um, there is a, a problem of, um, shall we say, voter fraud in this country. And one of, the one of the virtues of an electoral college type situation is voter fraud in any one jurisdiction is limited to that jurisdiction. So it sort of doesn't matter how many votes um, the the daily machine would run up in the city of Chicago. Um, all that they could get, for example, for President Kennedy during that election was Illinois' electoral votes. But under this system, if you do away with that, and then also think, think about Florida and the recounts in, in Florida. Um, uh, if, it, if what really matters is the national popular vote, then voter fraud everywhere and anywhere 
makes a huge difference. And you really would probably not have results of elections for a very long time until you started working out voter fraud, not just in a swing state that may be close, because that's not what's going to matter anymore. What's going to matter is every vote is going to matter. So you'd have to do recounts everywhere. And here's one more thing about the, the national electoral vote. Does your, and I just don't know the answer to this, does your proposal require a runoff election? Uh, the National Popular Vote Compact does not require a runoff, no. but you so, could certainly, uh, right. you know. So what that means, what that means is if you have three candidates running in a system, that you, would pro you could very well end up with a, plur a, a, a president who's supported not by a majority, mm -hmm. but by a plurality. So we'd have plurality presidents, not just majority presidents. So These so seem to me to be of sufficient concern. All these concerns, voter fraud and, being, and, and the inability to reach a result anywhere near election day because there's going to be recounts throughout the country. Um, the idea that um, you might have a plurality president and not a majority president. The idea that smaller states in the interest of rural states is gonna be overrun by, by large states that have large urban areas. These all seem to be sufficiently problematic that I would like to know what the advantage is on the other side other than pounding the table and saying, it's more majoritarian, therefore it's more legitimate. When we have a Republican constitution that is not premised on majoritarianism, it's premised on the idea that majoritarianism is the problem for which we need a constitution as a solution. So really quickly on the two practical concerns that you raise about recounts, um, uh, big states like California do recounts all the time. And they can hand, doing a recount uh, 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 in, uh, in more than one state is not any more problematic necessarily. But notice, you're going you're gonna to have a different recount problem whichever way you go. If you had a national popular vote system in place in 2000, the shenanigans in Florida would have been irrelevant because Gore would have won the national popular vote regardless of who won Florida. So in, in that instance... Uh, the current system creates more of a recount nightmare. In another case where the national popular vote is close, you might have to do recounts in multiple places, and that could be more challenging. So it's pick your poison. It, neither neither uh, uh, system uh, is inherently better with regard to the problem of recounts. The better answer to, to recounts is let's do recounts better. Let's have a, a federal law that facilitates uniformity in ballots and, and, and uniformity in counting and recounting, again, why I think Congress should, should have the time to weigh in to iron out some of these, these wrinkles. Now, the, the question of plurality presidencies, we have those under the current system. Abraham Lincoln did not win a state south of Virginia. Bill Clinton didn't get 50% of the vote either time. But that's it. We're in a republic. We're not. That's a, because we don't have a majoritarian system. On your account, it's the majority rule. It's the majority that should rule. But a majority won't be ruling a plurality. I don't have a problem with plurality presidents. But if you have, if the whole rationale for this thing is a majority should win. No, it's not a majority. It, it's that everyone's, oh, a majority. Vote, everyone's vote should count equally. And if you, if no one gets to fifty percent, but someone gets more than somebody else, they still win by virtue of all votes counting equally. And the problem, if you, if you want to get roll over fifty percent, you just have a, a, a single transferable runoff election, which you can have, like, like places like San Francisco have uh, and Maine has. So that could easily be, in fact, we proposed building that into the national popular vote uh, structure. It all sounds so easy, doesn't it? Two, uh, Questions for uh, Vic, practical questions, and one to Randy, and then closing statements. Okay. The, the practical questions are, first, 
about Texas. Professor Amar, you mentioned states like Texas get ignored. Does recent data indicating the purpling of Texas or the I'm, predicted, the, I'm sorry, the, the purpling does of Texas? recent data indicating the purpling of Texas? What a resonant phrase. Mm-hmm. I, actually, or, or the, I just don't understand what you're saying. Well, I'm just going to read the question. I know, but I don't understand the words you well, just let me, said. Purpling. Purpling. Forgive me. Purpling. Purpling. Thank yes, you. Let, me, let me enunciate better. We need fine <laughs> constitutional elocution. And I'll, well, and it's I'll a read word more I've slowly. never heard. None of us have ever heard before. No, purpling. no. It's a wonderful phrase. It's a great one. Uh, does recent data indicating the purpling, purpling of Texas or the predicted migration of liberals to the South affect your calculus or views of the need for a popular vote? And relatedly, basically, in the scenario of a national popular vote compact, why are state electors needed at all? They could not follow expectations. So uh, both excellent questions. The demographics are changing, to be sure. Um, and you know maybe Texas will be in play, maybe Arizona will be in play in a way that they weren't in previous elections. But the reality is you're always gonna have a relatively small number of states that are the swing states, and you're gonna have a large majority of states that are relatively predictable. Um, you know, the demographics because in, in, in places like Texas and, 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 and Arizona are changing, but the bigger trend is the big, uh, uh, I think Jeff used this term at an earlier conversation we have, the, the, the big sort, the self-sort, where people are choosing to move to different states and different parts of states based on political uh, and, uh, and social affiliation. Uh, and so I don't think you're gonna have kind of uh, every state uh, look like a, a swing state um, uh, anytime soon. Um, now the question of electors themselves and their independence, there was a recent decision from the US Court of Appeals for the 10th Circuit in Denver, uh, underscoring the, the, uh, the independence that electors have once they're selected to vote however they want. There was a, a Hillary Clinton uh, elector who did not vote for Hillary but voted for John Kasich instead, and uh, the state of Colorado tried to remove that elector and p- replace him with someone else um, uh, and undo his vote, and the 10th Circuit said you can't do that. I actually think the 10th Circuit might have been right. Uh, that the, the, the design of the system is that once these electors are selected, they do vote and their votes count regardless of whether they voted faithlessly. Um, there's nothing you can do about that without amending the Constitution. So, so the National Popular Vote Plan does not cure the problem of the faithless elector. Although I think, as was true with a popular election of US senators, once you have popular election of the president, under the NPV, after a few cycles, there probably would be momentum for a constitutional amendment to, to change the Electoral College altogether and get rid of electors. People don't realize this, but well before the 17th Amendment, 60% of the United States Senate was already popularly, directly elected by the people of the states and not the, not the state legislatures. It was the same template that the NPV is doing. State-level innovation, states passed laws and then constitutional provisions requiring their elected legislatures to pick as senators the person who was most popular among the state electorate. Think about the Lincoln-Douglas debates in 1858. They're debating over the US Senate and they're debating in front of throngs of people in a brutally hot, humid um, uh, uh, central Illinois uh, venue because already by then there's pressure on state legislatures um, uh, to respect the, the wishes of the voters. So, so I think ultimately NPV would, cause the, uh, the, the, uh, would solve the problem of faithless electors. In the meanwhile, just one final point. If a state wanted to, it could vet the electors a little bit more carefully to reduce faithlessness. 
Um, right now, uh, no one really knows who those electors are, and that's partly why they can, they can do things that are unexpected. You could invest a little bit more attention into picking who the electors are to make sure that they follow through on the wishes of the, the state after they're selected. Great. Well, National Constitution Center for a must end on time to prevent the purpling of the audience as well. <laughs> as well as the purpling of the moderator. So this will have to be the last question to Randy, and it's another good one. What challenges do you see currently to government being able to secure the people's inalienable rights, and what solutions do you propose? Wow, that's a big one. A nice small question uh, with, about, with no minutes to spare. Um, I, wish you, I wish I'd have read that question. I wish I could have had, while Vic was talking, to think about my answer to that <laughs> question. Um, uh, first of all, let me thanks, thank you for, for inviting me here to talk about this. Um, and uh, it's just, it really is unfortunately too good a question. Um, uh, my basic reason for coming here, and I know we have to end, is just to actually have debated or discussed the topic of are we a democracy or are we a republic? Uh, and I hope that I've, I've tried, I've made my case uh, that not only did the founders construct a constitution that was designed to be, and you might just call it un undemocratic or anti-democratic in the sense that it cabins democracy to a particular section of the government and not for the whole government. Uh, not only is that the case of the structure of our constitution, but in fact, that was a good idea. It was a great idea. It's one of the reasons why we are a great country um, and that we should meddle with it really uh, very, very reluctantly. Um, uh, including, you know, uh, making our constitution so-called more democratic. And I, I guess the big takeaway from this should be is what I said before. Uh, it's just not enough when you propose a reform or change in our constitutional structure to say it's more democratic. Because that could be as bad as it could be good. It could be good, it could be bad. What you really need is you need other reasons for doing it besides that, which would mean other reasons for changing the Electoral College besides the fact that you might have a winner of the election of the presidential election who don't doesn't get a popular majority. That's not a good enough reason because our constitution is fundamentally Republican and it is not democratic. Randy Barnett and Vikamar for inaugurating our fall season so rigorously and helping us understand whether America is a democracy or a republic. Please accept the audience. Thanks. This episode was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber.